how can we in these polarizing times, in these critical times, right, in these confusing times, how can we direct our energies to serve the communities around us? How can we direct our energies to be helpful, to be part of the solution, to reconnect with the legacy of how religious people who affirm biblical faith were motivated to make the world a better place? Today, I'm happy to have historian Jeffrey Rosario join me on Do Justice. Jeffrey is a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge in the United Kingdom, where he's studying American religious and political history. In today's conversation, we discuss the current coronavirus pandemic and how Christians have related to similar events in history. Also, you'll want to stick around to the end because my guest has some very helpful insights and great advice for those of us wanting to navigate the current environment of fake news and misinformation we find in our world today. And by the way, the Do Justice podcast now has a Facebook page. Go to facebook.com forward slash podcast do justice. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash podcast do justice. Or you can just search for the Do Justice podcast. You can like our page, connect with us there. And of course, we're still on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Do Justice Now. Jeffrey Rosario, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me on on Do Justice today. And for those who might be listening, who uh, may know you from a, a different you know context, or know you from the past, or uh, those who don't know you at all, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're doing right now? Sure, sure, of course. Thanks for having me, by the way. And I love the title of this podcast too, by the way. So I spent many years, about a decade or a decade and a half, uh, teaching for nonprofit continuing organizations, sort of continuing education programs, uh, discipleship programs, uh, teaching Bible or theology, and also do, being a seminar speaker uh, through different conferences and, and different types of convocations. And... I'm affiliated as well with a ministry called Light Bearers. Great ministry, by the Recently, way. Recently. Sorry? Great, great ministry, by the way, I should say. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I decided to continue digging deeper into research. And so I applied to graduate school. And I began at, at Yale studying history of Christianity. And during that program, I chose as my focus, Adventist history, the, the history of social and political engagement in the Adventist movement. And that was part of, that was like the point of specialization that I was looking for. But broadly speaking, we studied the history of Christianity from the apostolic era to modern times. After that program, I decided to pursue further and at the moment, I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge in England. And there, too, that's what I'm carrying over from my previous research, and that's 
a project that I'm writing in this dissertation on the social and political implications of Adventist apocalypticism, specifically how Adventism interprets America in prophecy and what are the implications of viewing history and the world through that lens in terms of social and political mm-hmm. implications. And so that's what I'm doing now. Wow. Cool. Look forward to uh, checking that out when you get it all finished. Um, and so while you're doing this, which is, um, I know, a, an incredibly, uh, you have to be focused and, and it's a lot of work to obviously um, write a dissertation. You're also finding time, though, to uh, write for uh, the Washington Post, at least. Uh, you re- recently wrote a piece um, called that you entitled Staying Home from Church to Protect Public Health is a Christian tradition. And, you know, here we are, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, it's kind of like a worldwide thing almost. Definitely here in the United States, it's it's a big deal right now. And I really appreciated the uh, perspective, I think, that you give us in in this piece that you wrote. Um, you, you started out talking about how various Christian uh, and church leaders here in the United States are, you know, resisting the various states' stay-at-home orders. And right. um, some, you know, interestingly enough, are even claiming that Christians can't be hurt by this virus. You know, it's like, you're immune because God is with you and uh, he won't let you get sick, which, right. of course, we know isn't true. But um, how how does this idea that Christians don't have to use common sense, almost, um, how does that square with the Bible or how the church has historically related to pandemics? You know, I think that's such an obvious question that as I was sitting, you know, watching the news as this thing developed, and every week, you know, there was updates on the gravity of the situation. And also every week, there was new cases of ministers and religious leaders, as you say, you know, dismissing the stay-at-home orders or the bans on mass gatherings. And I, I sincerely just thought, okay, I was waiting for somebody to pipe pipe up and chime in, you know? Right. Right. And and I didn't see any I didn't see any any engagement with that. And I thought that was that was crazy. And so I just decided, you know, I, this is driving me nuts. I can't believe that <laughs> And no one is saying something about this. And so I just, yeah, I just dove in and, and worked on this piece. So to your question, I, I began the piece by just identifying that the issue here, the issue when a, when a minister or religious leader says to a, you know, a congregation of thousands of people or hundreds of people, and basically in the face of a worldwide pandemic, and my wife is a ICU nurse on the on the front lines of this. So obviously mm-hmm. I'm coming, mm-hmm. coming to the subject with that also. Right. Uh, when, when, uh, when these ministers are telling their parishioners that they just need to have faith in God, that God will protect them, that this is not really a serious issue. Obviously they're, they're coming at this from a misrepresentation of biblical faith. And that was the, that was the first thing that was pressing to me that it's not that these pastors were reading too much Bible and not enough science. Mm-hmm. It's that my sense was they weren't reading the Bible closely enough, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not, it's not that they were reading too much Bible, it's that they were not reading enough Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, there was that irony of that paradox. So in my sense, it does not square at all with biblical faith. Uh, 
the examples that I see in history of both clergy and, and health professionals that were themselves Bible-believing Christians was an awareness that the Bible presents God as the architect of natural law, that God created physical bodies to function, right, by natural law, and that medicine and scientific knowledge that helps preserve health and and life that these things are consistent with biblical faith that there's no there's no real contradiction there Mm -hmm. and the one one figure that i was really struck by was the medical doctor and and health advocate john h kellogg and in the 1890s he wrote about the what did he say? How did he put it? He said that religion includes the body, that the laws that govern the healthful performance of, of the body and the bodily functions are just as much the laws of God as those of the Ten Commandments. Hmm. Right. And how when God delivered Israel from Egyptian bondage, that he didn't just give them the Ten Commandments, but he supplemented his laws with other codes mm-hmm. to protect their society. And those codes included public health principles. And among those were sanitation, hygiene, quarantine against the spread of disease. In other words, the picture, the picture there is a God who cares about not only the, phys, the, the, the spiritual, but also the physical well-being of individuals. And I felt that the, the example that we were getting in the news were these ministers who were downplaying that. And I think it distorts it distorts the presentation of of, of biblical faith mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. many many Christians, countless Christians in the past, really understood. Right. You know, just a thought that came to my mind as you were talking was, you know, in Matthew chapter four, where the devil tempts Jesus and says, "Cast yourself down." You know, the angels will catch you. You know, and he he quotes scripture right to. Mm. Uh, to justify that, uh, kind of a pres- obviously a presumptuous act, not the intention of you know that promise, that Bible promise. It wasn't meant for a situation like that, um, and it seems like um, we can fall into that trap too of, of twisting Scripture, perhaps to um, you know lead to presumption here. And it sounds like that's kind of what these some of these pastors may be doing. Um, so you know, it's funny you mentioned that text because when I was reading through sermons from Methodists and Presbyterians, mm-hmm. what you just said is literally what I found. <laughs> they really? were yeah. alluding to that passage and saying, "The our Lord gave us the example of not tempting God and mm-hmm. uh, against the laws of nature, violating the laws of nature, and then expecting God to perform a miracle to to spare us mm-hmm. was considered irresponsibly tempting God against." the kind of world he created. And so it's, yeah, what you just said is something that the counter witness of ministers, they were, they were aware of that. And by the way, it's short tangent here, just because I was in the archives one day looking at Kellogg and what, and the way he saw how biblical faith was complementary to, to health and public health. Mm-hmm. I was really surprised that some notable figures in American history will, were directly impacted by Kellogg's fusion of those two things. Hmm. I found, for example, U.S. President Herbert Hoover, 
who praised Kellogg and said that thousands owe their health and happiness to him. Like this is documented. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry Ford, John D. Rockefeller Jr., uh, Kenneth Hogate, who was uh, head of Dow Jones and chairman of the Wall Street Journal, said that Kellogg, you know, his principles of health and holistic living directly changed his life. So anyways, wow. I just want to say that just to show the, the potential of getting this thing right, you know? Sure. And and the uh, and the collateral damage of getting it wrong. I mean the 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 ridicule that I, I my Twitter feed was just loaded with ridicule against hmm. ignorant Christians, right? Right, right. It, so there, there, yeah. yeah, the stakes are high in my view. Yeah, I, I it doesn't seem like it does God any favors for us to be out there, you know, saying things like some of these folks are saying. You know, you brought up in your piece the uh, 1918 flu ec- epidemic, I believe. And, um, you know, did, were churches ordered to close back then? I mean, it was was something similar to what's happening now happening back uh, around that time. And, and if so, how did the churches and the Christians of that time react? Did Did you see at that time... Uh, a lot of doubt regarding, you know, whether this was a big deal, kind of like we see today. Um, kind of give us a, a context of what happened back then. Right. Yeah. The 1918 epidemic. It's it's become basically the classic parallel, right? The the classic comparative case. Mm-hmm. And and yes, we see examples of both sides of the spectrum that parallel what we're seeing today. Okay. okay. Yes, churches were ordered to close. Public gatherings were banned. And that included schools, businesses, playgrounds, theaters, etc. And yes, there are examples of of ministers who were initially doubtful about that. And what I emphasized in my piece because I felt like we already had examples of ministers doing <laughs> right. that in in the modern time. Yeah. So what I emphasized was the fact that we have some pretty compelling examples also of other ministers who led by a responsible example. And, and the yeah, I, I mentioned one minister in Washington, D.C., who uh, stood up in front of his church and basically underscored his name was Reverend J. Francis Grimke. Mm-hmm. And he basically told his congregation that avoiding crowds when it lessens the danger of being infected in a pandemic is perfectly consistent with being a responsible Christian and that uh, we should not needlessly endanger ourselves under the under co- under the cover of a suppose, you know, faith in God is going to protect us from physical harm. Mm-hmm. And then expect God to protect us. And then the other example I I ran into that I I found pretty compelling was the Methodist revivalist George Stewart, who he kind of amped it up. He was writing in a periodical in Alabama in the South, which I found was was a pretty compelling example. Because if you look at the cases on the news today, many of those cases – come from the South as well. Mm-hmm. And so here's a counter witness to that. And he he basically stood up in front of his church and he said, he was talking to them about intelligent Christianity and how mm. natural laws of disease and health, uh, the intelligent Christian sees those as gifts from God, right? And that those who follow Jesus also observe 
those laws and they teach others to do so. And for people to ignore the physical danger of disease and pandemics, that they're basically denying the gifts that God has given mm-hmm. to humans. And so, so yes, in, in, the, in the 1918 case, you get both examples. You get parallel examples of what's happening today. And some people have done case studies, for example, like I mentioned, of Washington, D.C. And I've seen other case studies as well. Interesting stuff. For example, the Pentecostals. And I want to just underscore again that several of the examples that I read of ministers are uh, today that were downplaying and, and sort of shrugging off, you know, public health warnings were also from Pentecostal related communities. And yet there's this, there's this piece, uh, one author who, who documented the assemblies of God is the Pente- this Pentecostal branch. And during the 1918 pandemic, they, they closed churches, they closed their missions, they canceled their revival meetings and instead of sitting around and complaining about the quote-unquote violation of their religious liberty rights, they pivoted and they started serving the sick in the community. And you see in their publications, report after report of ministers who closed their churches actually visiting the sick and trying to alleviate suffering in their community. They did not assume that religious faith could simply shield them from a real uh, pandemic when there was obvious uh, ways to avoid this physically. So I that 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 I found was pretty compelling. And in my particular case study that I work in, Seventh Day Adventism, I think there's also a compelling compelling witness there as well. How Seventh Day Adventists in in the 1918 pandemic responded. Mm-hmm. And a, a friend of mine, uh, I think a mutual friend of ours, Michael Campbell, who's a professor at Southwestern Adventist mm-hmm. University, I think just this morning in a live stream, gave a presentation where he showed how Adventist leaders during that pandemic were calling for greater service for the well-being of the community and all Adventist churches, schools, Evangelistic meetings, they all closed. Denominational events like the annual council meetings and others were canceled. And they were looking out for the welfare of the community. And, and so I went digging around, you know, during the time I was, I was looking through the sources on this subject. And I ran into a periodical called the Life and Health in the 19-teens, Adventist-run periodical. And there was a an article entitled how to avoid influenza. And it was just like several statements, strict isolation, strict mm-hmm. isolation, strict isolation, you know? Wow. So, so you get a sense there of these are Christians that are deeply immersed in the Bible, mm-hmm. right? In biblical faith who are acknowledging that the God of the Bible is interested not only in the, spiritual but in the physical uh there's there's one famous example is dr w.a rubel who was the secretary for the general conference medical department of adventists and he wrote this pretty hardcore piece in in the review and herald in october of 1918 and he basically said those who disregard the seriousness of this situation because they assume that they have not been sick because they're somehow holier than others or for some mm. for some spiritual merit that they have. He said, these are, these are 
cranks. That's what he called them. Wow. Um, and he said that the church has had 10 times more opportunities to serve the community in during times of pandemic. And so that's, that, these are the examples that I, that I started looking into where you see a contrast here in the examples we had in, in the last several weeks, there were religious people complaining about the inconvenience of having to close their churches and stay home. Now, if you juxtapose that with examples from 1918 of Christians, not only were they not complaining about the public health orders, but they took those opportunities to direct their energy to figuring out, okay, how can we help alleviate the sickness and the crisis that we're in? Right. I mean, that's that's a pretty significant difference. I love that. And so, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well, you know, it just it it reminds me a little bit of the early Christian church, right, in the Roman Empire. And I I was just listening to something yesterday. I'm trying to remember where. But uh, um, I think it was actually a a book I was listening to. and, And he was talking about how the Christians were known in the early centuries for, um, you know, being willing to minister to the Absolutely. sick and and so on and so forth. And many of them would die from the plagues. Of course, you know, science back then was less developed. So I don't know that, you know, people knew about isolation always or whatever, but um, that's neat. So, and, and, and you, Absolutely. by the way, yeah, sorry. See, you, you got, you got me going on this. Now. Good. Let's hear it. Uh, <laughs> you just brought us back to the early Christians. And, uh, you know, I, I too have read sources from second, third, fourth century examples. But one thing I, I we haven't mentioned yet on this, on this talk is uh, Martin Luther in the bubonic plague. Oh, sure. Yeah. Right. In, in, right. in 1520s in Germany. And this is, this is part of what was so ironic specifically. I think pretty much the vast majority of the cases we heard about religious defiance mm-hmm. against warnings were coming from Protestant communities. Mm-hmm. Right. I think pretty much every case I read, I mean, you may find, I don't, I don't even know if there were any Catholic cases, but each one was would of, of communities of people that would consider themselves descendants of some form of Protestant tradition, right? And then you got Martin Luther in the 1520s, mm-hmm. who, of course, by many is considered one of the fathers of the of the Protestant Reformation, at least the European Reformation in the 16th century. And there's this letter that was that's been going around the internet. So it's not like this is some, you know, some secret document. Mm-hmm. He, he wrote a letter in 1527, and he basically said in his letter, he's writing to a friend in the midst of the of the plague, and he says, "Let me see if I can um, if I can pull some words here." He said that he he basically said he would be willing to avoid places and persons where his presence is not immediately needed. And then I'm quoting here, in order not to become contaminated and inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. (laughs) It's almost like he's speaking direct from 1527, speaking directly to the modern situation in March of 2020. And then he he continues. He says, um, if my neighbor needs me, I will do whatever I can basically to help him. And then he says, see, this is such a God-fearing faith, quote, because it is neither brash 
nor foolhardy and does not tempt God, end mm. quote. Literally what Martin Luther said. Mm-hmm. And then later on, he, he goes on to, to quote Leviticus. Right. And right. to basically argue that the Bible itself lays down principles of social distancing and quarantine that are essential to prevent the spread of disease. And I, and I thought that was compelling. And so when I read that in Luther, I thought, well, I wonder if any of the other you know, big dogs from the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and then I ran mm-hmm. into John Wesley, and I won't take too much time on this, but John Wesley, you know, the father of the Methodist tradition of Protestantism. And I was really surprised to know that he was a major advocate of medical knowledge and scientific knowledge of the time mm. and to take that knowledge seriously as religious people in order to better physical. He wrote a book called Primitive Physique in the mid-1700s. And it, w- it was basically a little pamphlet where he gathered the most advanced medical knowledge of the time. And that pamphlet became one of the most popular medical tracts in the 18th and 19th century uh, England. And Wesley actually believed that diseases like influenza were spread through nauseous air. And one of his inspirations was another Bible preacher, a clergyman, Stephen Hale, who actually invented an artificial ventilator to help prevent the spread of disease that was believed to be airborne. And, And scholars now of Methodism and of Wesley, they're arguing in a recent volume that, uh, Wesley basically blended social and public health practice with a biblical sense of responsibility for the well-being of others. That's remarkable. Uh, and this is before before germ theory was really a thing, right? I mean, these exactly. guys understood it seems like they were ahead of their time in some ways or Yeah, like least, Louis Pasteur, right? Like well right. before all that. So Yeah, that's amazing. You know, and and you also mentioned in in your piece how uh, really our public health uh, That's right. system that we, you know, the kind of paradigm for what we have as, you know, public health, um, in our governments today was, was really started by Christians. Um, and, and that's, that's right. that to me is really fascinating considering how today it seems like, um, Christians, some Christians at least tend to be kind of on the fringe, uh, of rejecting, you know, public health measures. Uh, so, uh, that was interesting. Just the fact that I think you mentioned uh, who was it that that kind of served yeah. as an impetus for that here in the states. That's right. There were two particular figures, and and I think the sort of ground zero for all this was New York City. So John Griscom was one. Okay. And then Robert Hartley, which was a who was a staunch Presbyterian, and these two figures together, basically considered as some of the early founders of the public health systems in the United States, what they laid down when they were looking at the, the different pandemics in New York City, the issues with sanitation, hygiene, and again, the need for quarantine to, to stem the spread of disease, that what they, the principles they laid down as, as public servants, I mean, John Griscom was the, um, oh, I forget the title, but basically he was the, the health inspector of New York City. These are people in top positions who were Bible-believing Christians. And the key here was both of them believed that God ordained, again, the physical body to be governed by nat- natural law. So when we over-spiritualize the nature of disease, 
we're basically practicing willful ignorance in that unnecessary death, unnecessary premature death, unnecessary sickness is really an offense to God. And to ignore physical the physical danger of this of disease was absurd and contrary to the Bible. So I found that to be pretty pretty compelling that the whole system of public health, mm-hmm. which has basically been at the center of controversy among you know these pastors, sure. was actually founded by people who saw the holistic approach of biblical faith to the individual, both spiritual and, and physical. Mm-hmm. And I was just very inspired by that. Did you, let me ask you this, cause I, I see another layer with, with the public health issue as well. So that, that is a really interesting thing to me that, that, yeah, they saw this, you know, that, that Christians, the people have a responsibility to follow, you know, like physical laws. But I think when you, when you also look at public health, um, you know, there has to be also the element of caring for other people around you, right? It's not just your mm. own physical health, but also I'm doing this or this needs to be done to take care of society at large. Um, otherwise, you know, lots of people are going to die basically or whatever. Um, what was that in their thinking as well when these public health programs were started? Was any of the kind of love your neighbor stuff uh, a motivator too? You know, uh, Griscom, our first example in the in the the research that I read, stated that he was he was literally one of the earliest thinkers who actually distinguished between individual and public health okay. as a concept. Sure, as a concept. Neat. Yeah. So it's almost like you just loved me. You know, you just loved one to me. There. It's like Griscom was the person who helped even coin the concept of public health. Wow. Neat. Which again, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a list of, you know, letters that, that can prove that he drew specific Bible verses when he came to that conclusion. But you have to assume that those principles are perfectly consistent with the Christian ethos. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, uh, would have likely influenced that mentality. It's not just about my personal health. By the way, by the way, if we can if we can go back to Luther. I mean, I don't think even we need Griscom in in the eighteen, you know, in the mid eighteen hundreds for that. I think even Luther in the fifteen twenties, in that letter, he specifically says, "I need to be sure as a responsible Christian, not only that I keep myself safe from this, but." Primary concern should be protecting the lives of others, mm-hmm, assuring mm-hmm. that I don't infect other. What is that? I mean, to, sure. that's basically yeah. in an embryo, the concept of public health, right? Right. So totally. what, what these guys did in the 18, in the 1800s, what they, was they systematized that concept with, you know, social policies and government policies. So you, you get a, a basic principle that then becomes part of a larger system. So, so fast forward now to, uh, here we are, you know, 2020, and, and there's a lot of mistrust of government, uh, at least in certain parts of the Christian community here in America. Um, you know, for example, I know Christians who doubt that this virus is really a big deal. 
Um, others think mm-hmm. that, you know, the CDC or somebody is in on a conspiracy to kill Americans or like they're letting this happen because they want us all to die. I'm not sure why, but anyway, there's probably some reason or, you know, they think that maybe they're going to use this now to force vaccinate everyone, which, you know, again, has other potential ramifications for some people. So, um, in fact, you know, yes, just yesterday I was on Twitter and, and there was a, um, a hashtag or, or something trending that was COVID-19 is a lie. It was trending on Twitter. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, who starts these things? Who believes this? Anyway, whatever. Um, who do you, wow. I'm, I'm more interested now in who, who you're, who, who are the followers in your Twitter? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm more concerned about you at this point. Yeah, I know. Right. Um, well, so what is, and I'd like to just kind of just along these lines, I mean, you've already given us a lot here with the fact that, Hey, Christians were super influential in establishing the public health system in the United States, at least. But, uh, even zooming out a little bit more, what are some examples of how Christians, how the church has cooperated with government during past crises, uh, to help and, you know, and maybe kind of combining that with kind of this concept of um, how the church has responded to controversial uh, situations in the past. You know, for example, uh, you know, where there's propaganda and misinformation being spread. Um, yeah. You know, what, what are just some historical nuggets you'd like to leave us with on that? Well, I mean, that's a loaded lot, lots of lots to talk about yeah yeah that's a loaded loaded question there but i, I think hmm, well certainly there's examples of how christians cooperated with the government i think we've we've alluded to some of those every example i've mentioned at least in recent in modern history would be a case in point of the church cooperating with government right i mean sure. the, from the examples of these ministers during the 1918 pandemic, uh, we, we see th- there were in D.C., for example, meetings convened by area ministers from different denominations and, you know, resolutions agreed upon to, uh, to, to comply with government you know, policies and so forth. So some of the examples we've already covered would be examples of that. But the issue of propaganda and misinformation I think that is a major, major issue today. And, you know, I, I read years ago, I read an interview in the, of, from the 1960s of Ernest Hemingway, the famous writer, mm-hmm. famous novelist. And he was talking about how people need to develop fine-tuned craft detectors. That was the phrase he used. Huh. And I remember laughing yeah. out loud when I read that. I think I was just, I just got off of Facebook or something. And then I read that and I was like, <laughs> oh man, oh, yeah. it's like he's, he's, you know, looking over my shoulders here. People need to develop fine-tuned craft detectors. I think with so much superficial knowledge on the internet, I think that becomes even more relevant today. It's amazing. It is amazing how easy it is to just put something out there, some piece of information and just watch how people just completely just eat it up uncritically. So I think the the need to learn critical thinking skills, to 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 discern context in what we're reading, the information we're we're consuming, to 
to know how to sniff out biases, right? These are these are things that many people just don't even ask. We read the news. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not actively, but passively. We read information passively. It's like we we turn off our critical thinking, our our awareness, and then we just consume things. We need to know how to be skeptical when we evaluate sources. Like, ask key questions. Like, where is this coming from? What are the unstated biases in what I'm reading? The unstated assumptions. What about the unstated agendas? You know, when I was during my master studies at Yale, I attended a intense and intense conference about the concept of fake news. Mm-hmm. They had people up there from the New York Times. They had people up there from Political. I think Washington Post. I think NPR. I forget who all was there on the panel, but I remember it was pretty emotional because people in the audience, you know, were just responding to 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 what was happening at the time in the country. And one of the panelists asked the audience whether he asked for for a raising of hands for people who read the news from sources that do not represent their own views. Mm-hmm. In other words, does anybody here occasionally, you know, dabble in some of the, you know, some platforms where, where your views are not always represented there and virtually nobody raised their hand. Hmm. And his point, his point was that it's healthy to get out of your bubble. Otherwise you're simply reinforcing your own ideas on a daily basis without having your ideas challenged. Mm -hmm. So when we think about Christians in the church and the issue of propaganda and misinformation, I think we're not dealing with an isolated issue. In other words, this is not something related simply to how Christians interpret general information it's about politics or public health or whatever. I think it's connected to how Christians consume or interpret even religious information, how they approach the Bible. Uh, I'm talking about superficial reading, proof texting, pulling a sentence or two out of context, mm. and then drawing all kinds of conclusions from that. Reading with an uncritical lens about our own biases, being uh, you know unaware of, of our own biases. Mm. So I think I trace this fixation on conspiracy and how people just see something and they immediately repost it on Facebook or on Twitter. Something that hasn't been substantiated is coming from an unknown source. You know, that, you know so for this over, you know, you, mm-hmm, you're, mm-hmm. I'm sure, familiar from the sound of your Twitter feed. <laughs> you're familiar <laughs> with what I'm talking about. Um, I think that I think that there's a correlation between how Christians consume that kind of information to how they approach the Bible. I know I'm going on a bit of a tangent with that, no. but I say that just to say how 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 does the church respond to this? I think I think it begins by going back to really just talking about how how to be careful thinkers, how to be responsible thinkers. You know, uh, I was doing research on how just trying to find continuities and discontinuities to how Adventists were reading the news and how they were immediately trying to draw correlations to, you know, their beliefs about Bible prophecy or mm-hmm. some, some other mm-hmm. theological beliefs, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I started in the 1850s and I, and, I, and I went, 
when I got to the 1990s, mm. I, I thought it was really interesting because I ran into several articles. One of them was from a professor of religion at Union College by the name of Beatrice Neal. And she she was responding to the bizarre ideas that Adventists were peddling in the 1990s. Hmm. There were people reading news about world events, about stuff happening in the Middle East or who knows what else. And they were just consuming information and then just drawing all kinds of crazy, bizarre ideas from them. And in her article, she has this phrase that I think is, is pretty you know, pertinent. She says that Christians have to learn to desensationalize, this is her term, quote, desensationalize their interpretations and to keep while they keep a sense of urgency. So desensationalizing prophetic interpretations and yet keeping a sense of urgency. And I, I think that's very difficult for the typical Christian or mm-hmm. or the, the group I'm studying, a typical Adventist to do, right? It's mm-hmm. so tempting. Uh, another article I read called on each each Christian to be extremely cautious in their speculations. I mean, this is, these are like words used in the article. Mm-hmm. And then it closed by saying, quote, we need a religion that watches the signs of the times while resisting the urge to create signs from events that don't deserve to be invested with such significance, end quote. And I love that. Mm, I love that. Yeah. So basically, we need to learn how to think, man. That's what I'm getting at. We need to learn how to think carefully. And it was less of an urgent need to learn how to think when information was not so pervasive and accessible. I, I was just going to ask you about that with the internet. It seems like with the advent of the internet, um, yeah, we've been just, you know, inundated with information, but a lot of it is, is bad information. Absolutely. Uh, and you so know, you my mom's to... not going to go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say, my mom's not going to listen to this podcast. So I'm going to tell you this. <laughs> my mom calls me probably once a week mm. and she says, Jeffrey, look at this. She, she, she'll text me at some link and she'll say, look at it. And then she'll like, explain how she basically <laughs> has adopted this within her framework and it is about to influence and to inform her decisions in life <laughs> right so i read i i, I click on the link this happens repeated regularly and you get a virus I click on the link yeah. and then i that's right and i say okay mom i have a couple just a, several questions for you where did this information come from right because when i click on the link it's completely unrecognizable where this came from, who wrote it. Mm-hmm. There's no footnotes. There's no sources reference, right? It's just somebody just, anyhow, that's a silly example, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's as uncommon as we would hope. No. And you know, yeah, I don't know what motivates that. Um, and I don't know if it's wishful thinking or what, but it is interesting how, yeah, we do have to be discerning. And I, I appreciate, you know, your, your admonition to uh, think, because that is really uh, important, especially as Christians, I think to be, mm-hmm. you know, thinking with the um, guidance of the Holy spirit and with the reference mm-hmm. point of, of the word of God. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was going to, I was going to wrap up by asking you, you know, you're, you're not only a historian, but you are a theologian, um, mm. Bible students. Um, and I was going to ask you, you know, what do you think is, is the greatest opportunity of the church right now, Christians right now in 2020? And I think you've, 
you probably answered it, but is there anything else you want to add to that? What do you think would uh, be the greatest opportunity for us right now? We're living this, you know, this time of um, a lot of uh, polarization, um, disinformation, and and so on and so forth. What what would you leave us with? How we can you know do justice in the world today as as individuals and as the church? You know, uh, I would just reemphasize this this sense of awareness that I read about in the 19 teens, right? In the 1918, 1919 examples of people who consider themselves Christians and who have adopted a biblical framework through which to understand the world around them, rather than viewing themselves constantly as victims of some persecution to channel that energy into the question, how can we in these polarizing times, in these critical times, right, in these confusing times, how can we direct our energies to serve the communities around us? How can we direct our energies to be helpful, to be part of the solution, to forge, you know, I think to, to reach back into to reconnect with the legacy of how religious people, how people of faith, people who affirm biblical faith were motivated to make the world a better place by that, by that worldview, rather than adding to the clutter, adding to the vitriol, rather than going on Facebook and posting ridiculous comments that just stir up controversy and create contentions with people and pushing political agendas, right? All of that energy redirected to how can we make an impact to the real problems that are happening in the world today. I think uh, that to me seems to be the most pressing thing we can learn. And in those articles I read in 1918, the the question was, okay, what can we do in this pandemic? How can we serve? That's what I would, that's what I would take from, from our, our current beautiful. situation. That's beautiful. Thanks, Jeffrey Rosario. And for those who want to check out uh, Jeffrey's piece in the Washington Post, the title is Staying Home from Church to Protect Public Health is a Christian Tradition. And that's uh, a great piece. You will enjoy it. Thanks for talking with me today, Jeff. Thanks for having me.